This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about credit card debt and how to pay it off. And there are some specific ways to do that. Um, But, gee, you know, it feels like a big, giant thing Mm -hmm. to have to take on because it it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to give breaks on these things. Well, it's just so easy, Elaine, just to sit into the cycle, slip into the cycle of just pay the minimum each month. No one ever calls you for a delinquent payment. Because it actually tells you on the statement. Yeah, that's all you need to do to tick the box, right? And then you're compliant and your credit rating is usually okay and all that good stuff. But I've had clients tell me, you know, it feels like you're pushing a boulder up the hill every month and it just tumbles down against you every month after because the interest just piles on again. So it can feel hopeless if all you're doing is just making minimum payments. Absolutely, because they do tell you too. I mean, that's sort of a new thing, right? That the credit card company will tell you how long it will take if you just pay the minimum, Mm -hmm. thank you very much, how long it will take to pay off. And just that debt, that current statement, not the... uh, not if you continue to use yeah, your Yeah, not card. with any new purchases or right. things like that. So, you know, let, let's go through a couple examples yeah. there just to, to give the listeners a bit of an illustration of, you know, how severe it can be to be in some credit card debt and just be making the minimums. So, you know, let's say it's a $5,000 balance. So it's something probably a lot of folks could relate to, you know, maybe things got out of hand for a few months, there was a vacation overrun or something like that. But let's say it's a $5,000 debt and it's on a store credit card. And this is something you wouldn't want to do because, you know, the big retailer credit cards are typically the highest interest rates, you know, at 29.9% interest rate. If you were just paying the minimum payments on $5,000, Elaine, it would take you 50 years and four months to get out of that debt. That's crazy. 50 years to clear $5,000. And you know how much you would have paid back by the end of it? I can't imagine. 23, almost $24,000. So you paid the debt four or five times over. You preserve great credit, but at what expense? That $5,000 50 years later, you won't even remember anything about what you had spent that on. And that's only on that one card. And that's that's if you never use it again ever until, until the end of time. And someone might be saying, okay, well, who's going to put, you know, that much money on a store credit card? Well, clearly some people, because I see them, but well, that's not your best practice, right? No, it's so, not. But, yeah. uh, but you know, furniture, yeah. if you're buying furniture, sometimes mm-hmm. you do that at a major retail, uh, like a department store. Oh, yeah. Those can right? be upwards of 29, 30% easy. Yeah. yeah. And they're, you know, big purchases. Yeah. Unless you've got the cash on hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. So let, let's keep at that 5000 and let's yes. say, okay, you know, it's a typical credit card, which is about 18.9% interest, so significantly right. better. Um, you're making your minimum payments. How long do you think it's going to take? It's better than 50 years for sure. Is it? 19 years and nine months. So, you know, still, if you were late in your working life, you're ready to retire and you're getting this thing paid off. Um, But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's again, the 20-year plan for 5,000 bucks, even at a reasonable standard credit card interest rate. Um, You know, final example here, and then we'll move on, is let's say you've got a low rate interest card, except people come in and say, oh yeah, this card is great. You know, it's cheaper than the other card. So I put things on it. I carry a balance, but I know I'm not getting that far behind. So a lot of low rate cards might be, you know, 11.9% interest. Same 5,000 bucks. 
15 years. 15 years. So wow. you're still in this cycle for quite a long time. Yeah, very So long. what I want folks to take away from this is making your minimum payments is not a solution that will ever get you out of debt. It's just a means for you to preserve great credit and pad the bank's bottom line. So what's the first thing you should do if you've got big credit card debt? How do you deal with it? <laughs> yeah, so today's segment, I wanted to talk about things people can do that don't necessarily include Sands and Associates, but things anybody could do. So, you know, the first one is just try to negotiate. You know, a lot of people think that just because you got this card and there's a certain rate that's in all the advertisements, that's the best that you can do. It's often not the best that you can do. Really? They will ch- They will lower it? Yeah. Now, it depends on your situation. If you've been delinquent for the last six months and they're calling you all over the place, no chance on that. If you've never missed a payment and you're telling them, you know what, this interest rate's too high, I'm considering taking my business elsewhere for a better deal, generally you'll have a positive conversation and you might end up with some interest rate reduction. Yeah. There's literally no downside to doing this other than your time and perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. We don't like to ask for things in, in life, but this is one of the times where if you don't ask, you'll never get it. Right. So I would say call your bank, call your whatever the credit card company is, and just explain that, yeah, I feel like this interest rate is too high. I would like to know what my options are to lower it. Okay. Now, what are the, uh, there's one more, there's a, two more things or one more thing that you could do as well. When you say that there, if one credit card has a lower interest rate than the other, mm-hmm. you may want to move the money around or the debt around. Yeah. So that can be something to consider too. If you've got a few different cards and one is significantly lower and there's some room on there, you can do a balance transfer. Now, Previously, you know, five, 10 years ago, balance transfers cost you nothing in fees. It was pretty straightforward. Now you've got to be careful. I've seen a lot of card issuers, whatever balance you transfer over, they often take a 1% fee, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, but, oh. you know, it's just cash right off the top just to move the money around. So again, make sure that it's going to pay off in the long term if there are some short-term fees if you move money to a lower interest rate card. Okay, so then what? Then what do you do? Well, so say that you've moved things around as much as you can and your yes. debts are where they are. Um, then you've got to have a bit of a strategy of how are you going to pay these debts down. So it's assuming the situation is not so severe that you need the help of a trustee, but you might need just some help to organize things. So one approach that we like to do um, is to pay the highest interest cards first. So the steps you go through here is you'd sit down, you'd list all of your credit cards by interest rate with the highest rates at the top. So obviously, you know, the department store store cards typically would be up there. Sure. You'd look at your monthly budget and you'd figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. So the minimum payments, that's just going to be a a go-to. You've got to cover that each month or else you're going to be delinquent and we're assuming that you're going to try to pay these all off over time. Okay. But figure out, can I devote an extra $200, $300, $100, whatever it is above and beyond the minimums, figure out what that what that extra pot of money looks like. And then every month, take that extra money and apply it to the highest interest rate card only. So you pay the minimums on all of them, but the one that you're really trying to knock down is the highest interest rate cost. Makes sense. And once that one's gone, you move on to the second one, so on and so forth. And you celebrate every time that you pay a card off. You know, whether you go out, you go for a nice walk, you get yourself a coffee, you know, go (laughs) out and max the cards out. Yeah, (laughs) don't buy anything big. Yeah, but the best things in life don't cost money, so treat yourself to those. Fair enough, fair Mm -hmm. enough. So what about consolidating? the debt as a strategy. Do you do a line of credit or get that consolidation Yeah, that's what a lot of people really rush to first is, okay, we've got all these debts and a bunch of different cards. Uh, Let's try to simplify our life. Let's put everything together. And ideally, let's get a lower interest rate. And that can really work well for certain people if you can qualify for it. So Mm. the challenge is, 
you know, for a bank to do a consolidation loan, they're essentially going and paying off all of your other debts, paying them off in full, and then expecting you to keep them whole at the end of the day and pay the bank off in full. Right. Now, they're willing to take that risk if you've got something to pledge, if you've got assets, if you've got a house that has a lot of equity, if you've got a bunch of money in the bank. It's quite often it's the people that don't need the bank's help or the people that the bank wants to help the most. Right. Um, but if you're able to qualify for a consolidation loan, the really key important thing is to take those old credit cards and you know whether you freeze them, you chop them up, you do something, it's to stop using them. Because I've seen again and again people come into me, they had the consolidation loan two years ago, they thought they were going to pay everything down and now they come in to see me. The consolidation loan hasn't moved that much because life intervened and you know what? The credit cards are back where they were before the consolidation loan because it was just too tempting to use all this available credit. Or sometimes it's not even, it's it's circumstances. Mm-hmm. As you say, life happened. Like, yeah. And we know that one small thing can really cause big financial problems for people. Somebody yeah. gets sick, somebody, you know, whatever. There's a, a hundred different things that can oh, happen. You're exactly right, Elena. And thank you for making that point too. Yeah. So I say it's too tempting. It's not that it's that, but it it's, can it's, be for it sure. Can be, but it, it's often the case that, you know, something, a shock to the system happened, but sometimes it's, you know, it's a longer term, it's a budgetary leak. Every month there's a few hundred dollars of overspending that just gets put on credit. And until you address that, um, you're consistently going to have, have a bit of trouble. Okay. So consolidation loan, uh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get that. What do I do then? Yeah, so if those other options aren't working for you, so you've tried to lower the interest rate by negotiating, you've tried to move balances around at the lowest possible interest rate, you've tried to consolidate and maybe you've been turned down or you've done it and the cards are back where they were, that's when you probably need to reach out to someone like a licensed insolvency trustee to consider a consumer proposal. And anyone that listens to our show on a long-term basis, they'll know exactly what a consumer proposal is. Sure. But in a nutshell, a consumer proposal is going to consolidate all the debt, set the interest down to zero, so not 20, not 10, not 15, 0%, and give you the time that you need to repay that reduced balance. So basically reduce the debts to what you can afford, eliminate the interest, and give you a payment plan for the reduced balance. So um, in... Okay, so that makes sense, and and that and that debt isn't just retail credit card stuff too. Mm-hmm. That's everything. That's yeah. as you mentioned, student loans and government stuff. Yeah. Um, what are there any sort of problems that people can run into trying to pay off their credit card debt? Yeah, there, there's a few of them, Elaine. You know, the first one is just what we talked about at the beginning. It's just sure. the idea of just getting caught in the cycle of only making the minimum payments and not seeing the debt go down. Right. So that can just be depressing over time. And, you know, increasingly these minimum payments, you know, if you're not using this card and you're paying it off, you tend to use another card. Then that one needs another minimum payment. So they tend to snowball over time. See, and that's the point that I would think that to talk to somebody mm-hmm. makes the best sense at that point. Because yeah. obviously there's something that's not quite... I want to say out of whack, but I, uh, but that's not the right term. But it, there's an imbalance. Yeah, that's fair. And there could be a number of factors for it. It might have nothing to do with the, the individual situation or judgments that they've made. Something just could have happened. But there's an imbalance with their ability to pay off these debts and have a financially successful future and the plan that they're going on now, which is the 50 or 100-year payment plan being stuck in the minimum payment trap. Now, how often do you find that people go into debt to pay off their debt? Very often. And, yeah. and that could be um, uh, from a number of different sources. Yeah. And, and so often, Elaine, it's because that's the easiest thing to do. Sure. So if someone's calling you every month, they're coming through the phone saying you're a horrible person, they're a collection <laughs> agent that needs to be paid, and you know that you can make this go away if you get a cash advance from another card or move a balance over for here or there, you know, why wouldn't you do that to get this person off of your back? Yeah. Or if somebody wants to help you, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we've got great people in our in our lives yeah. and they say, well, listen, uh, why don't I loan you the money? Yeah. 
and we know that that well, quite often, if you do that, you don't deal with the underlying problem. So that's what we really like to do at Sands and Associates is to really sit down and, and figure out, well, what's causing the debt problem? Is it just a one-time thing that happened or is there an imbalance on a monthly basis? We need to really work with you on your budget. But if you don't deal with the underlying problem, you just address the symptom, um, it is going to recur again. Yeah. And what about using, if not, well, I guess credit and debt are really the same thing at that mm-hmm. point if you're trying to pay something off. Yeah, that's the almost the number one warning sign and definitely a number of years ago before, you know, all this minimum payments became more well known, you knew someone was going to have a problem if every month they're using credit to pay credit or using debt to pay debt, but essentially, you know, taking money from one card to pay another and then you clear off some some room there and then you move it to the other card. Um, you know, sometimes it means taking a payday loan this month just to pay off your minimum payments for the next month, but essentially making your obligations, your payments that you have to make, making them with borrowed money, that's one of the number one warning signs that someone's going to have some financial challenges. And I just want to add, you know, my experience of you is that you know that people for the for like 99% of folks are just trying to do the best they can. Yeah. Oh yeah, no I when I came into this this uh, job, I really had no idea. And I thought that, you know, the potential for people abusing their debt would be far greater than what it actually is. Like, I can count in the fingers of one hand with a couple left over the number of people I've seen in 13 years of practice that were clearly out for their own personal benefit, and that was that. Right. Almost everybody else, really good, honest people, they need some compassion, some empathy to help them move forward from their debt situation. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by credit card or other debts, Go to Sands and Associates, meet with Blair, meet with the, the staff at the locations. What, there's 16 offices 17 now? 17 now, 17 yes. in British Columbia. Uh, a licensed insolvency trustee. Get that professional help, that professional debt advice, because uh, these people know what they're talking about. Or if you want to do a little bit more research first, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Uh, and the website, again, is sands-trustee.com. Now, I got to say, Blair, I've been doing this show long enough with you that each year we have talked about your BC Consumer Debt Study and all the data that comes out. And this is for 2020. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what what you were able to find out, what Sands and Associates was able to find out. The fact that you talked to 800. 1,800 consumers around the province is awesome, and it's just chock-a-block full of insights. So um, do you want to give a little bit of uh, history or a little bit about the consumer debt study before we get into it? Yeah, I'd be happy to do so. You know, Elaine, this is one of the things I look forward to every year in doing this debt study. Um, and as you mentioned there, you know, it's 1,800 people who've actually filed a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. So this isn't some, you know, uh, market research panel of Canadians, maybe some have debt, some don't. These are actual people in BC who've taken the step, taken the hard decision to face their debt problem head on. And what's really exciting is they tell us in really detail about what got them into the situation, how they chose their debt remedies, some words of wisdom for others in the future. And it's interesting, too, some of the trends over time. We've been doing this since 2012, and there's definitely things that have changed then in terms of you know the profile of people um, that are getting debt help and even the solutions that they're choosing. And this year was obviously different with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we're able to ask about that. Um, their survey was in field towards the latter half of 2020. So as we all rec- recall, you know that was when you know lockdowns were starting to lift a little bit, but we had been through a good six, seven months uh, where the pandemic had really hit everybody hard. Yeah. So what did you what did you find out? What were some of the things you found out, like uh, the main reasons uh, for folks or consumers taking on debt? Uh, how, mm-hmm. how did that show up for you? What, what did it look like? 
Well, I think it'll be surprising for, for listeners here. So about 20% of it is what people would normally assume causes a bankruptcy or a proposal. It's people saying, you know, I just got overextended on my credit. I, you know, I financially mismanaged things. Maybe I didn't have good financial literacy or good budgeting skills. You know, that was about 20% of people. But for 80% of people, the cause, the reason why they had to do either a bankruptcy or a proposal uh, was that a life event happened that was largely outside of their control. So maybe it was illness, injury, or health-related problems. Um, Maybe it was cost of living outpacing income, which is more than 10% of people said, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just my costs kept going up every year and my income didn't. Um, For some folks, it was marital or relationship breakdown. That just has huge financial impacts of reestablishing oneself or maybe dividing assets or trying to split up some debt that's jointly incurred. And then the last one was job-related or job loss. So the sum of those is, you know, roughly uh, 80% of folks, it wasn't just financial mismanagement. Um, it was issues that, you know, essentially, if you had a good emergency fund, if you had six to 12 months of your fixed expenses socked away, you might have been able to manage things. But that just seems to have gone the way of the dodo. Most people don't have, um, you know, a whole bunch of, of savings socked away. You know, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And when a shock to the system, like an illness, a relationship breakdown, or a job loss happened, you know, they're not more than a couple of cycles away from really needing some help with their debts. Yeah, I, this is interesting to me. Uh, the next piece of it that you got uh, over 65% of people were worried about being able to meet their basic costs of living to formally mm-hmm. resolving their indebtedness. And, and that's significant. I mean, all these things compounded together, but boy, oh boy, that's significant to me. Yeah, and, you know, I see it day to day just in the inflation and rental costs. You know, when I started to be a, a trustee in BC around 2008, um, you know, it was rare when I was seeing people more than 25, 30% of their income on rent. Um, now it's quite often people are 50% of their income or 45% of their income on rent. And that's just a cost of living that, um, you know, really removes a whole lot of flexibility they might have had to absorb a shock otherwise. Yeah. What about credit card? What kind of, what kind of role did that play in this? Well, probably the more the most dominant role. So uh, nearly 60% of people um, that we polled, we asked, you know, what was the main reason that you had to file in terms of the debt? Was it the payday loans? Was it a mortgage? Was it something else? And over half, nearly 60%, it was credit card debt was the main type of debt that they were handling. And that was five times more than the next highest type of debt. You know, lines of credit, student loans, they were all, you know, around kind of at the 10, 12% mark. Credit card debt, nearly 60% of people, it was the credit cards that got them into trouble. Interesting. What else did it find sort of in general terms for you? Yeah, these are always interesting just to know the profile of people that are filing a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. The highest proportion of people, their debt load was between $25,000 and $50,000 of debt. And that excludes a vehicle loan or a mortgage. So that's, you know, your credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, payday loans, income tax debts. So that's kind of the most dominant um, share of folks. Now, some people file for a whole lot less, some for a whole lot more. Uh, What was also interesting is 30% of people described their credit rating as ranging from good to excellent at the time they filed a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. And that just really drives home that point that a credit rating is so completely divorced from overall financial health that a lot of folks, again, 30% of people in this survey said, hey, my credit was great. It might have been seven, even 800, but all I was doing was making my minimum payments and I just knew I wasn't getting ahead. So a credit rating isn't always a great uh, predictor of whether someone in great shape and just having a good credit rating it doesn't inoculate you against having to do a bankruptcy or a proposal it just means according to all the credit rating metrics you know you're making all your payments on time um, but will you ever pay the debt off well but the, the metric doesn't measure that 
in this next number too, I think uh, the idea that there's more, or am I to gather that more people are renting versus owning and still getting into trouble as a result? Yeah, absolutely. An overwhelming proportion. So only 6% of people uh, who filed the bankruptcy or proposal were homeowners. So it's not the case that, you know, especially in B.C. with the huge mortgages, huge real estate values, you know, mortgage overextension just isn't a thing that drives people into insolvency. You know, from my experience, the house appreciates in value. They're able to access some equity uh, and they end up being OK. But for 94 percent of people who don't own real estate, um, those are the folks that are filing bankruptcies or proposals. Um, so, yeah, that was that was quite a low proportion. Just six percent of the respondents were actually homeowners. That's interesting. And before we continue on, I just want to add, if, if this is already starting to resonate with you and you're thinking, oh, yikes, this and this and this are something I've already experienced. Maybe I need to take a look at this uh, and start that conversation with someone from Sands and Associates. Give them a call. It's nice and easy to do. It's a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Now, I know it's going to be different this year than other years, of course, is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that that's had on consumers. Uh, what, did, what did you find out? Well, it was a hugely significant impact. I think that that's not a surprise to folks. Obviously, a lot of people had their income, you know, cut off pretty dramatically overnight. And yes, the government replaced a lot of income with CERB and other programs. But for half of people, or more than half, 54% of people who filed an insolvency after March of 2020, they said the COVID-19 pandemic was the major contributing factor to them needing to seek help with their debt, either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So that was huge. So the pandemic was a factor in half of the bankruptcies or proposals filed since the lockdown in March. And the reason for that um, is 58% of those who filed after the pandemic had hit said, you know, it caused the loss of income and that made their pre-existing debt load unmanageable. And then about 20% said they started to use credit to make up for that lost income. So they just started to dig down a deeper hole. Um, and even a very small percent, 4%, said they had no debt before the pandemic, and the pandemic hit them so hard that it actually drove them into either a bankruptcy or a proposal just in the space of since March 2020 to about November when we concluded the survey. And you've spoken about you've spoken to this idea uh, in the past when we've talked about it, that uh, it's often that one thing, like everybody's kind of managing, it's everything's going OK, all the keeping everything in place and and move, you know, doing all right, doing all right. And then, bam, something significant happens. And and, you know, this pandemic crazy. Who knew that who who could prepare for something like this? But that's the thing that tipped these people over the top. Mm hmm. That, that's right, Elaine. And, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, there's there's actually a 24 year low as of now, the number of people filing for bankruptcies or proposals. And, you know, we understood why, because, you know, the government did a lot of income replacements, which was great. It's what they needed to do. Courts were closed for periods of time um, and creditors gave a lot of payment deferrals. But nobody got better financially um, over the course of this COVID-19 pandemic or nobody that I'm speaking with anyway. So what we anticipate is, you know, this is just the lull before the storm. There's a lot of folks who will need the help of a proposal or a bankruptcy as they try to recover from this pandemic. And you know, who knows the timelines of that? We all probably would have thought we'd be out of this by now. We're, we're still deep into it. Yeah. And that and that's, and that goes joins really nicely to the next thing I was going to ask you was about the trends. What were some of the trends that you that you discovered in the from the study? 
Yeah, and that's one of the great benefits of doing this since 2012 is we can just track over time how things have shifted. And one of the main shifts is just the aging of debt. So we found in 2012 that 26% of those who filed insolvency proceedings were 55 years of age or older. So either, you know, pre-retirement or getting into retirement. Uh, that went up to 40% in 2020. So from 26 to 40%, that's basically one and a half times the incidence of what it was eight years ago. So that's a very significant um, increase in the number of seniors or, again, pre-retirement individuals who are needing help with their debts. Uh, that's a trend I see day after day is, you know, a lot of folks who thought, you know, they'd be enjoying the golden years with no debt. They just haven't been able to pay the debt off over time. And the pensions don't increase as fast as cost of living often. So people do end up in a tough spot if they're in that age group. Hmm, that's interesting. What else did you find in terms of trends? Yeah, on the really positive side, uh, consumer proposals have just grown like crazy since we started doing this segment or th- these uh, surveys. So in 2012, it was only 20% of people had chosen to file a consumer proposal. Either they weren't aware of it or just didn't fit their situation at the time. 80% had filed for bankruptcy. Um, in this case, 65% of people had filed consumer proposals. So from 20% in 2012 to 65%, so about two-thirds of individuals, um, compared to bankruptcy going from the option of 80% of people down to about 30% of people who are choosing to file for bankruptcy. Almost always, if someone is able to file a consumer proposal, they feel better about it. It's not as severe as a bankruptcy, and they're able to you know, avoid having to do that bankruptcy filing. So that's a positive thing. There's more awareness of proposals, uh, and people are, are embracing that option. And as we wrap uh, wrap up this segment, I think Blair, the the piece that is really spoke to me in terms of the the really alarming severe impacts that folks experienced as a result of their debt problems, uh, and that it's just out of control for them. Yeah, you know, there's no one that can have their debt problem, you know, put it into a box and worry about it ten minutes a day or an hour or a week. Everyone that we speak with, it's a constant worry. They just can't get it off their mind that they're in debt. They're just worried about the future. And for three out of five people, the way they knew they had a debt problem wasn't from doing hard math. It was that they felt overwhelming stress. They just thought, I can't sleep. I can't feel good about the future. I know I've got to get some help. Um, and the three and four people, they were experiencing anxiety and depression, um, You know, even as much as suicidal thoughts for a small percentage of individuals as well. So debt can be all-consuming. It's a problem you can get help for, uh, but you've got to recognize the warning signs. And essentially, if you feel stressed, if you feel like you have a debt problem, now's the time to get some help. It's really, a, it's really part of a snowball thing that, t- that can happen for folks. Uh, and this is why it's such a good, you guys have such good information that's available for people. I want to mention the website. It's sands-trustee.com. And there's a whole section there that's filled with good questions and really thoughtful answers on, on next steps for you. And if you want to talk to somebody, that's easy too as well. The 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. You know what? The word bankruptcy, Blair, it, it, it's got, it's such a loaded word. That's what I want to say. It's so loaded mm-hmm. for, for people, for, with, for different reasons, with different definitions, but it's, they all are big and scary, I think is fair to say. Um, and I love that we're going to dis, uh, dispel some of these myths around personal bankruptcy. And we say in British Columbia, because our bankruptcy rules are a little different, each province has their own set. And uh, I think it's so important to, that we go over these. 
Yeah, Elaine, uh, you know, before I started to become a trustee, I had the same negative connotations, you know, about bankruptcy that the average person would have. You know, this means the end of your life. This means it's a complete failure. Uh, what I've come to understand is this is the chance to start again. It's a new beginning. It's a chance to put all of the debt that's causing you pain, um, shame and harm. I'll put all that behind you and get a new chance, a fresh start, a new lease on life. So bankruptcy can be very positive, especially finishing it and starting again with no debt. Um, but yeah, not, not kidding myself, a lot of people react very negatively emotionally when they hear the idea of a bankruptcy. And that's to a lot of folks' detriment because it is the case that what you don't know can hurt you. And people suffer for far longer than they should in very hopeless and difficult debt situations because they had some conception of what they thought a bankruptcy would look like that was completely divorced from a reality. You know, in our recent client surveys, up to 95% of people said that they didn't seek debt help right away. Most of them suffered for up two years, only 5% reached out as soon as they knew there was a problem. And the big reason why people decided to wait was they thought there was no solution. They didn't know where to reach out to. They didn't know this bankruptcy thing would solve their issues. Um, and then once they had filed the proceeding, more than seven in 10 people coming through a bankruptcy were extremely satisfied with their decision. So what we all think is negative, more than seven out of 10 people say this was positive. Some people say it was the best thing I ever did to get my life back. The other piece I just want to throw in, and we and you know this is true, is that that people you're you're not alone in struggling mm -hmm. with uh, debts and finances and and a restricted economy and all of those things, especially right now. But just living in BC, in the Lower Mainland, for example, uh, we're up against a lot of stresses that other parts of the province or other parts of the country certainly aren't under. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, it, it, in typical months, it's upwards of a thousand people across BC file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So odds are someone in your life has been um, through a trustee's door. You may not know about it, but trust me, that person is going to be better off for having gotten help. So let's start with the first myth that you that you want to talk about. Bankruptcy is only for folks who have poor credit ratings. Yeah, so totally not true. So you can have a poor credit rating and file for bankruptcy. You could have perfect credit and apply for bankruptcy. So it's not a requirement uh, that, you know, you've been missing payments completely. You know, you've been sued for your debts or things like that. The requirement to file for bankruptcy uh, is that you owe more than $1,000 and that you are insolvent. And insolvent means that you're not able to pay your debts as they become due. So, you know, you might be missing payments or not, or you might just look forward and say, you know what, I'm never going to be able to pay these debts back, even if I make all the minimum payments. If I were to sell all of my assets, there's no way I would be able to, uh, to basically clear all this debt. So you have to be having difficulty not able to pay your debts or at least forecast that you'll have difficulty and you have to be owing more than a thousand dollars but it's more than 70 percent of people that come to us they've actually got great credit and it, it was so surprising to me my first few clients when i saw their credit reports i was like wow this is in the 700s you've got sixty thousand dollars of debt and you're just moving money around every month um, to make the minimum payments that's what it takes to keep a good credit rating so you don't need to be delinquent on your debts the vast majority of people they find a way to keep everybody paid uh, but they just know when they file for bankruptcy that it's actually going to get them out of debt because all they're doing is treading water at this point. So I, I know that you've said that lots of people believe that in order to file for bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, your situation has to be exceptionally dire. Um, but that's not necessarily true either. 
No, it, it definitely ranges from person to person. So for some folks, you know, owing $10,000 is incredibly overbearing and they can't handle the stress and they wouldn't be able to pay it back because their income is quite low. Uh, for someone with very high income, you know, owing twenty-five dollars or $30,000, that might not be a dire situation for them because they know their income is very strong and they can pay things back. So a trustee can help you figure out all of these things. But the idea is not to wait until it's such that you've been sued, your wages are being taken, you're getting collection calls morning, noon, or night. It doesn't have to be that severe for you to reach out to a bankruptcy or to a licensed insolvency trustee. All you need to do is to, to understand um, the, you know, that you're just not going to be able to pay this debt as you go forward and you can have access to this option. Okay, and I'll just mention the website uh, where you can uh, start that process to talk to somebody at Sands & Associates. It's sands-trustee.com, or you can give them a number, a uh, call rather, at 1-800-661-3030. Um, I bet and one of the other myths would be that government debt, because that is so scary when you owe either the provincial government or the federal government. CRA is, is like this looming monster if you're in debt to them. Um, and the mm -hmm. feeling that I, there's nothing I can do about it. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I often say, you know, the three scariest lengths letters in the English language for Canadians is CRA. People yeah. just, when they've got a tax debt or whether it's income taxes, GST, student loans, or other amounts owing to government, uh, people get very scared because the government does have additional powers of collection that other creditors don't have, uh, but they've got no exemption in the Bankruptcy Act. So if you owe money for, again, income taxes, GST, student loans, even ICBC debt, um, all of that can be dealt with as part of a personal bankruptcy. It can be discharged, which means it gets left behind. It doesn't follow you. And what you need to be careful about is we get a lot of our news, you know, from down south in the U.S. or maybe from other places. In certain jurisdictions like the U.S., there is an exemption for tax debt. You go bankrupt, you still owe that money. Canada is not that way. So if you go into bankruptcy, your tax debt will be dealt with as part of the bankruptcy. Can we talk about um, how bad your situation has to be in terms of the myths around that? Like, I'm going to lose mm -hmm. everything. I'm going to lose everything yeah. if I declare bankruptcy. That That's a huge myth that, that people have. And again, the, the, the cursory understanding of bankruptcy is you give up everything and you basically throw yourself at the mercy of the court. That's not really the case. So for the vast majority of people that file for bankruptcy in BC, they keep all of their assets. They're actually in a better position having filed the bankruptcy because now they're protected and nobody can seize anything from them. But each province in Canada holds out certain exemptions that if someone files for bankruptcy, uh, the government says, well, it's not right that you lose everything. How are you going to reestablish yourself? So in the province of BC, there's generous exemptions for household furniture, for clothing, for a vehicle, for tools of the trade, and even equity in a principal residence. So even if you've got a house and there's a little bit of equity in there, it's not a foregone conclusion. If you file for bankruptcy, you have to surrender all of that equity or sell the house. So there are certain individuals, they file for bankruptcy and they've got, say, you know, a nice boat or, or a vacation property or something that could be used to pay off the debt. There are some, some assets that would have to be surrendered, but the vast majority of people keep all of their assets during a bankruptcy proceeding. And length of time, I'm sure, goes into that, too. Like, I'm going to be in this situation forever, or at least that's yeah. how it feels. But that's not the case either. Well, and that's what can frustrate me a little bit, because you hear sometimes in the media, oh, and they're partway through their seven-year bankruptcy term. I'm like, well, there's no seven-year bankruptcy term. Where is this coming from? So Aww. people think, yeah, they're going to be bankrupt for six or seven or even 10 years. Absolutely not the case. For 80% of people, then they file for bankruptcy, they are finished and discharged inside of nine months. 
So not nine years, nine months, literally. And that's if you're low income. If you're not low income, it's done in under two years. It's in 21 months in total. Where the seven-year myth comes from, I think, uh, is there is a credit rating impact for bankruptcy. So once you're finished, uh, bankruptcy is noted on your credit report for six years after your discharge. So if you're nine months in bankruptcy plus six years on your credit, okay, that totals up to seven years. But you were finished the bankruptcy in nine months. And if you do the right things to rebuild your credit, that bankruptcy notation isn't going to matter much after two to three years. If you make it all your payments on time, you know, not being delinquent on anything, you could even get a mortgage two to three years after bankruptcy if you've been able to save some money. So there's no seven-year bankruptcies unless things have went horribly awry. The vast majority of people, it's nine months. And I know that people talk about, well, I'm filing for bankruptcy or I'm thinking about doing it. I'm going to need this and this and this, including a lawyer. And how how true is that, that people need legal advice to go through this? All you need is a trustee. It starts with a free consultation. You don't need to pay any retainers. You don't need to pay anything. A trustee is going to explain everything to you. Yeah, you can go hire a lawyer to get some individual advice, but the vast majority of people are well served just to deal directly with a trustee. So good. And check out their website if you need more information before you make the call, if that's the case, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. This segment is all about wage and bank account garnishments, which I think is a really good idea for a segment because, man, that would be unbelievably scary uh, just dealing with that threat of a garnishment by a creditor. Be super stressful for folks. And they do have rights, like the person, the victim in this case, does have rights. Uh, But boy, oh boy, you know, you, you have to you have to figure out or find out what those are. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Elaine. This is oftentimes one of the most challenging situations people face, um, and it means that things have gone very bad with their creditors if suddenly there's a garnishment in place. And what we talk to when we, when we say garnishment, it's sometimes called you know, a garnishee or a wage assignment or an attachment. Uh, what it is, it's the ability for a creditor to collect a debt from you by seizing part of your income. So what it means in practice is that you were getting your paycheck, you know, just regular along, things were going fine. Suddenly a creditor gets a garnishee against you, and quite often the province of BC, that's 30% of your take-home pay before you receive it, it's taken off the top and given to the creditor who has the garnishee against you. Um, so that can just be incredibly debilitating. Most people are really having a tough time making ends meet on 100% of their income. So to suddenly have to work with $0.70 cent dollars from their salary uh, can be very difficult, and it often sends people running through our doors because a trustee is one of the only people that can stop it dead in its tracks. I bet it does. I can't, I can't imagine going through that. Um, so how does a creditor start this kind of collection action? Well, there's a bunch of things that that have to be done. And what's important for people to know, too, is that let's say 10,000 people owe money and are a little bit delinquent. All 10,000 are going to be threatened with a garnishment, um, but it's a very small subset, probably in the low single digits, you know, maybe it's four or five of those thousand who are actually going to get preceded with a wage garnishment. So just because you've been threatened with one doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. It might happen. You might be one of those unlucky few, but it is something that's threatened very often, um, but it's, it's not always followed through on. Um, so what a garnishment happens is that the creditor or how a garnishment happens is that the creditor needs to apply to court to start a wage garnishment. And that takes time and it generally doesn't happen overnight. 
So even if they're threatening your next paycheck, we're going to take some share of it. If you know there's been no court action taken against you, you haven't been served with documents, nothing like that, you know that's a bit of an empty threat. So before a creditor can actually garnish your wages, they need to get actually two court orders. So the first is a judgment against you um, called a payment order, which confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. So, you know, if you owed a credit card company a debt and they've tried forever to collect from you and you haven't paid them, they can go to court and the court would give them a judgment against you is what that's called. Um, And they would win because it's a valid debt and you're not disputing it. Once they have have this judgment against you, uh, they can then seek what's called a garnishing order, which would require the third party who owes you money, which is often your employer, to make payments to the creditor and not to you. Now, any creditor that's doing this, they actually have to repeat that step for every pay period. So each time they're doing this, they are incurring some costs. Um, so you know, it doesn't always get get stuck on there, but sometimes creditors can be quite efficient. Um, they'll just be a machine, and every pay period they'll be back in court and getting the garnishee to, to basically be, be re- reinstated each time. Um, so it's really important that you don't stop opening your mail. You might miss some of these legal notices. You might miss a service of documents if you don't open all the things you're supposed to. So just make sure that you're aware of what's going on. If there's been a judgment, uh, a payment hearing, or then a garnishing order, you, you definitely want to know about that. Um, if you haven't opened your mail and you just get surprised, what you're, go- what you're going to find is your employer's payroll department is going to receive the garnishing order from the creditor, and they're legally bound to abide by that order. So if they decide, well, you know, we really like you, Joe, and we don't want to give any of your wages to the creditors, what it means is that employer is now personally liable for making that remittance back to the back to the creditor who has the garnishee. So it's not something they can be wishy and washy about. Unfortunately, that garnishee has to be respected. Okay. Now, is this the same process for all creditors who are wanting their money? Not all. So all except for government. So any typical consumer debt that's not a government debt, they do have to go to court. They have to get the payment hearing and the garnishing order. But if it's a government debt, they can skip court altogether, uh, which is talk about a shock. So, again, you definitely open your mail, but sometimes you might not even have a whole lot of, of advance notice of the government deciding that they're going to garnish she. They can just send a note directly to your employer. Uh, if you're self-employed, they can also send a notice directly to your clients. And they can that's what's called a requirement to pay. And the requirement is for them to pay the government, not you, uh, meaning that your clients might have to give 100% of the amount that they you, if you're self-employed, have done a bunch of work and are expecting a big check, CRA can intercept that up to 100% of the funds uh, with very little notice to you. Uh, They can also put a hold or a freeze or even a seizure on your bank account with little notice. So when we say garnishment, quite often it's CRA and there's not that much advance notice, but anybody that's not CRA does have to go through that multi-step court process. Okay. And do I know that they're undertaking this process right away? Well, it depends. So usually this is not the first thing that they're going to try, especially with CRA. They're going to try to be reasonable. They're going to let you know what's happening. Uh, But you might not have a whole lot of advance notice uh, that you're going to be garnished because sometimes they want to make sure, especially if there's a bunch of money in a bank account, that you don't just go and move that bank account elsewhere or take the money out and hold it in cash. So sometimes you'll have an idea it's coming, but it can hit you without much warning at times. 
Okay. I just want to direct folks, if you're wanting to take some action or need more information than what we're giving you at this moment, check out their website, Sands & Associates website. It's really good. It's filled with great questions and answers, lots of good information at sands-trustee.com. Or if you're in this situation already and you want to take action and uh, get that appointment with somebody from Sands & Associates and see if you can figure this out, 1-800-661-3030. How much of a person's income is a creditor allowed to take? Yeah, usually in the province of BC, it's 30% of your net. So after those deductions are, are taken for CPP, EI, income tax, and things like that, um, 30% of what would be paid to you is what typically a creditor would be able to seize. Um, but there are some exceptions to this. So Canada Revenue Agency can go above 30%. It's just a provincial limit, not a federal limit. Uh, and Family Maintenance Enforcement, they can go above 30% as well for unpaid alimony or child support. Um, as I mentioned, CRA could take up to 100% of amounts owing if you're self-employed and a client is about to pay you. That could be seized up to 100%. Uh, but there's some income that's very difficult to seize, and this just makes sense. You know, things like CPP or OAS or guaranteed income supplement or employment insurance or social assistance. Typically, this is just allowing people to, to meet their very basic minimum living expenses each month. And quite often, you won't see a garnishment. No court will grant you a garnishment other than perhaps CRA or FMEP, but typically um, they're going to be you know, reasonable and understanding about that. So if you've just got social assistance or just those other forms of income that I mentioned, they're typically less likely to be garnished, especially by a creditor, but even by CRA, they're less likely to be seized. Okay. And then what kind of options do I have to deal with this? Well, you can definitely try to apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside. So you can try to prove to the court that this garnishment is causing you significant financial hardship or it's not required to ensure payment of the debt. You're going to pay these guys. They don't need the garnishment to, to make sure of that. Or you can ask them to increase the percentage of your income that's not subject to a garnishment. So uh, by default, 70% of your income isn't, suffer isn't subject to a garnishment. You can say, well, court, I think it should be 90% of my income, and that would reduce the amount that, that's being taken. Most people don't pursue that remedy. They get you know, quite scared of making court applications or don't know what to do. So quite often, they just allow the garnishment to continue um, or quite often, and I hope people know this is an option, they reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee. And the reason why creditors often threaten a garnishment but don't pursue it is because any money they've spent to get a garnishment in place or anything like that, it stops dead in its tracks as soon as a licensed insolvency trustee is appointed. So either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal would stop a garnishment, give the person their income back, and they're generally in a much better position once they've got that protection. Got it. I can't stress enough what good sense it makes to to give somebody at Sands and Associates, a licensed insolvency trustee, a call just to say, look, at this is my situation. What can I do? What can I do today? Because often it's like this is starting tomorrow or it's been going on for a week already and I am in a serious situation. So sands-trustee.com is the website. Give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.